Matthew 22 continues the conflict that began with Jesus overthrowing the tables in the temple. He's denouncing Jerusalem for rejecting him as their king, and he tells a parable to illustrate the conflict. It's a story about the kingdom and who's going to enter into it. And Jesus compares it to a wedding feast. It's supposed to be a happy occasion to celebrate his son, like any wedding day. And he would have sent out the initial invitations, sort of like a modern-day RSVP, in order to get a head count. And just like today, weddings were expensive back then. But this king spared no expense, preparing multiple oxen and fattened calves. Now once everything's been prepared, he sends his servants out to get the party people who've said that they would come. But nobody does. And so he sends for them again. But some are busy with their farm or their business, and others are just outright hostile, treating his servants shamefully and even killing some. So the king says that those who were invited weren't worthy and destroys them in their city. But with everything still prepared, the king sends his servants out now to find anybody that they can, good or bad, and fills the wedding hall. But even among these, there's someone unworthy. One man doesn't have a wedding garment on. These would have been any kind of decent clothing available to anyone. It's like this guy is wearing white to the wedding or hot pink at a funeral. And so the king has him cast out of the wedding, concluding the parable in verse 14 with the saying, Many are called, but few are chosen. So if you're generally familiar with the Bible, you'll probably recognize some points that Jesus is trying to get across. God is the king, Jesus is the son, and those who were invited initially are the Jews that Jesus is dealing with right now. The parable is a warning. God had sent plenty of invitations and done so much for his people, but they were always ignoring or killing his messengers. Jesus has come into Jerusalem, but nobody's recognizing him. Nobody's interested in calling him the king. Nobody is interested in naming him as the son of God. He's come with that one final invitation, and they're about to kill him for it. And so in the parable at verse 7, we read that the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city, which is exactly what God will do to Jerusalem for crucifying Jesus. Forty years after his death, God sends Rome to level the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple, fulfilling Jesus' judgment on it that he initiated in chapter 21. But God still plans on having a wedding. Since the first guest rejected his invitation, God sends the apostles out to the world. It was believed by many that the Jews were God's special and only people, but God is now going out to claim all nations as his. But we stand to make the same mistake as Israel did. Among the new party guests is the one without the wedding garment. Now, traditional interpretation, starting with Augustine in the 4th century, claims that this was the host's responsibility to provide the garment. But with all that we know about ancient wedding customs now, such a practice has never been found. It was this man's responsibility, after having been called, to live up to the invitation. Many are called, but few are chosen, because many refuse to hear what comes after the invitation. Moving on to verse 15, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they do so by asking one question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now taxes were a hot topic in the days of Jesus. They weren't opposed to the principle of taxation, just who they were paying the taxes to and how. To pay the tax was to pay the Gentile nation currently oppressing God's people, Rome. And you had to pay taxes with a specific coin, the silver denarius. And on this coin was the emperor's image that bore the inscription Tiberius Caesar, 
son of the divine Augustus. And so in the Jewish eye, this coin was nothing more than an idol. And plenty of Jews had voiced their displeasure about Roman taxation. About 20 years prior to this conversation with Jesus, there was a Jewish revolt against taxation in Galilee. And in response, Rome destroyed their largest city, Sepphoris, which was within walking distance of Nazareth. So if Jesus supports taxation, he's got no claim to be king. He's just a servant of Rome. But if Jesus denounces taxation, then he's a revolutionary who could quickly be put to death by Rome. But Jesus has another answer ready. He says, show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, pay back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That the Pharisees even have a coin with Caesar's image on it shows that they've compromised themselves. Now, Jesus' response is very similar to a passage in the Apocrypha called 1 Maccabees. It's a historical work about the Jewish revolutionaries who overthrew the Greeks who were ruling over them roughly 100 years before Jesus. In 1 Maccabees 2.68, a dying leader is commanding his followers, pay back the Gentiles in full and obey the commands of the law. So similarly, Jesus says, pay back Caesar what he's owed and follow God. If Jesus purposely has this saying in mind, then paying Caesar back might have something more to do with just taxes. But he's not saying that we should take that as a free license to wield the sword and pay him back like the zealots wanted to. We are still under the authority of God, and we need to give him what bears his image, ourselves. And this means leaving vengeance to God while we follow the path of reconciliation. So Jesus is endorsing a revolutionary response, but it's a very different kind of revolution. It's one that conquers not through force, but through love. As Jesus has said in Matthew 5, 43 through 44, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The next test comes from the Sadducees, who question him on the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees didn't like the idea of a resurrection, because it was a doctrine tied not only to dead bodies being raised up, but a complete overhaul of society similar to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 16. The last will be first, and the first last. Well, the Sadducees, they were on top, and they didn't like the idea of things going topsy-turvy, so they present this situation to Jesus. If a man dies childless, then his brother should take his wife and have children for the sake of his brother. But then suppose he dies childless as well. And so does the next brother, and the next, until she's been married to all seven brothers. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? Well, in verse 29, Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scripture nor the power of God. Jesus argues along two lines. First, marriage isn't going to be a thing in the resurrection. And second, Jesus proves his case with a single word. God says, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Jesus says he's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Not I was, but I am, meaning that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still have some form of life. Now the next test comes from the Pharisees again. In verse 35, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? 
The Pharisees would all agree that all laws were important and that none were dispensable. But that didn't mean that there wasn't a list of priorities, which one should be kept even at the expense of others. Such a test would have pitted Jesus against the orthodoxy of his day. There were plenty of different opinions on what the greatest command was, but Jesus focuses on just two. He said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and Leviticus 19, verse 18. And in focusing instead on principles rather than a specific commandment, Jesus is giving priority to the principle of love that can be applied to every situation. In each situation that we face, we need to ask ourselves what action will demonstrate and show a love of God? Which action will show a love for my neighbor? Thus, the entire law is validated by Jesus and summed up in that one idea of love. Now, the final question is given by Jesus in verses 41 through 46. Everyone claims that the Messiah is David's son, but Jesus wants them to see that he's much more than just a descendant of David. He quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then asks the crowd, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? It's a bit of a riddle that people are still puzzling out today. But given that these conversations are all happening in the context of Jesus' judgment on the temple, we can come out with at least two conclusions. First, the Messiah would be the one who sat on the throne next to God himself, putting him in a position far above any that David ever had. And second, Psalm 110 also asserts that the Messiah would be a priest of the order of Melchizedek. That is, the Messiah would be of a priesthood that supersedes the present temple regime, thus justifying what Jesus has done in the temple. So looking back on this chapter as a whole, Jesus is not only asserting his authority, but he's proving it time and time again. So when he gives us that warning in the parable of the wedding feast, many are called, but few are chosen, Jesus shows that there's authority behind this call. He's inviting us to the feast where we can honor him as our king, where we can choose to sit outside in the dark 